Well, good morning. If you'd open your Bibles to Galatians chapter 2. Galatians chapter 2. While you are turning there, it's this... I want to congratulate all the guys who managed to make it here. Um, I, I, it was funny watching people walk in, and, and there was like this like men's club of congratulations for getting here with the kids. All. It's like the bar is so low for, for us. Uh, so, so it's, anyway, good work. Good work, guys. Um, Galatians chapter 2, Paul, Apostle of the Lord Jesus Christ, uh, writes by inspiration of the Holy Spirit this letter to the Galatians and, and, and also to us in verse 15. He writes, We ourselves are Jews by birth and not Gentile sinners, yet we know that a person is not justified by works of the law, but through faith in Jesus Christ. So we also have believed in Christ Jesus in order to be justified by faith in Christ and not by works of the law, because by works of the law, no one will be justified. But if, in our endeavor to be justified in Christ, we too were found to be sinners, is Christ then a servant of sin? Certainly not. For if I rebuild what I tore down, I prove myself to be a transgressor. For through the law, I died to the law, so that I might live to God. I have been crucified with Christ It is no longer I who live, but Christ who lives in me. And the life I now live in the flesh, I live by faith in the Son of God, who loved me and gave himself for me. I do not nullify the grace of God, for if righteousness were through the law, then Christ died for no purpose. Would you pray with me? Father, we ask now that you would open your word up to us and open us up to your word that we might behold the light of the gospel, of the glory of Christ. Please bless us now to that end in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, some, some time ago, there was a, a young man, Roman Catholic, intensely aware of his own sin, and he would habitually and earnestly show up for confession. He was convinced that he was a great sinner. If he would have been analyzed today for his mental health, he probably would have been on the obsessive-compulsive side of of the ledger. And and he tried to stop sinning. He, He tried desperately, but he was unable to do so, and that just exacerbated things all the more. He was keenly aware of every slight imperfection in his character, every tendency that he had toward greed and anger and pride. And after wearing out the ears of his priest in the confessional, he would be sent home, the priest exhausted by listening to this young man. And then as this man was walking home along the path, Perhaps he would remember some sin that he had not confessed, or he had sinned even as he was walking home, and so he would turn around and he would go right back to the confessional, and woe to the priest who managed to still be in the confessional booth after Martin Luther had been there, because uh, you were in for it again. You should learn from your mistakes when you say goodbye to Martin Luther as his confessor, you go 
immediately out of there. Otherwise, you're going to get stuck uh, again and again and again. Well, Luther was tormented by his sin, and he was terrified of the judgment that he knew awaited him. When he would read Romans 1.17, that spoke of, of, of the righteousness of God being revealed in the gospel, he understood that verse to mean that God's holiness is on display in the gospel and woe to the sinner. Woe to the sinner when God's holy righteousness is revealed. The, the, the revelation of God's righteousness in the gospel, at least Luther's understanding of it at the time, was absolutely terrifying to him. It would mean certain, horrible judgment for him and for everyone else. So it was only natural that he came to resent God resent God. In fact, he he wrote this. He said, I did not love. Yes, I, I hated the righteous God who punishes sinners. And secretly, if not blasphemously, certainly murmuring greatly, I was angry with God and said, as if indeed it is not enough that miserable sinners, like himself, eternally lost through original sin, are crushed by every kind of calamity by the law of the Decalogue, the Ten Commandments, without having God add pain to pain by the gospel and also by the gospel, threatening us with his righteousness and his wrath. He felt bad enough that he couldn't keep the law, that he couldn't keep the Ten Commandments, but then to have Heaped on top of that, the righteousness of God revealed in the gospel was just adding insult to injury. And, and, and as you heard, he, he confessed, I hated God. I hated God. Now, you, no doubt you know the rest of the story. While preaching through the book of Romans, Luther came to understand that, that the righteousness of God that is revealed in the gospel is not the horrible and terrible judgment that will be executed upon sinners but it is actually a verdict of righteousness that is freely awarded to those sinners on the day of judgment, those who have placed their faith in Jesus Christ. And so, in short, Luther, as we know, came to understand and embrace the good news of salvation through faith in Jesus Christ, and his preaching of that changed the world. Now, you're going to hear, as we work through the book of Galatians, you're going to hear Luther alluded to over and over and over again. And I think the reason is because Martin Luther was at home in the book of Galatians. It was his go-to book. And even though I just described for you kind of his conversion, which came from preaching through Romans, his, his work in the book of Galatians, uh, which, which focuses on this doctrine of justification by grace through faith, it just echoes forth chapter after chapter after chapter, and that's what Luther came to love. So you'll hear a lot about Luther, no doubt. Maybe Mike and I will have a contest to see who cannot mention Martin Luther uh, for, on one of these sermons. But uh, th- this morning, for those of you, uh, you you're here, you, maybe you don't understand yourself right now to be a, a Christian. I, I want you to consider this. And, and this is going to sound harsh, but, but it's, let's be real here, okay? What is your plea going to be on the day of judgment? 
If you're like 99.999% of people, you know that there's got to be some sort of reckoning, some sort of reckoning one day. What is your plea going to be? That is, what are you going to base what you want your judgment? What are you going to base that upon? And then consider this, an alternative Maybe there's actually hope, real, earnest hope in the gospel. For Christians, you're, you're here, I, I want you actually to consider the same thing. If you're a Christian, you have believed the gospel by, by definition, right? But have you forgotten the gospel? Our text this morning that we're looking at, it's predicated on how easy it is for a Christian to forget the gospel, to forget the hope of the gospel, and to return just like almost naturally, there's like this gravitational pull, return to a way of living that seeks to make your own way with God, to pull yourself up by your own moral bootstraps. I'm not entirely even sure what that means, but I, I've heard that phrase over and over again. I suspect maybe you don't even know what it means, or you, maybe you don't know where it came from, but you know what I mean, right? Where you're doing something by your own effort. Are you trying to justify yourself even after you have confessed the gospel? So today we're going to dig deep into one of the most precious doctrines of the Christian faith. We're going to ask the question, how are we ever to be saved? How are we ever to be saved? And so I, I, this, this sermon is broken down in, in this way. We're, we're going to look at the facts and assertion that, that Paul makes right off the bat. And then we're going to look at a misconception, something that he has to address that was taking place in, in the churches in Galatia. And then then we're going to look at, at two kind of points of reality. The, these are the, 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 the facts of the matter. So let's start this way. We are saved through faith, not through works of the law. This is repeated over and over again in the first part of this passage. The biblical text, we ourselves are Jews by birth and not Gentile sinners. Yet we know that a person is not justified by works of the law, but through faith in Jesus Christ. So we also have believed in Christ Jesus in order to be justified by faith in Christ and not by works of the law, because by works of the law, no one will be justified. Now, the context for this passage, what we heard last week, is that Paul, who planted these church in Galatia, has heard that there are a number of people coming up from Jerusalem. They are Jewish by birth, and they are going up to, to help out these Gentile Christians who have, have, have decided to follow the Jewish Messiah. That sounds very helpful, but Paul calls them troublers, they are troubling the Galatians because basically what they're saying is, hey, it's great that you're following the Jewish Messiah, but now if you really want to be a Christian, you should follow the Jewish law too. And that begins with circumcision. It has to do with how you eat and all this other stuff. And, and then to, to add insult to injury, Peter has been with them just enjoying the fellowship Freedom in Christ with these Gentiles, like Peter, that Peter, the Apostle Peter, the one who was with Jesus, right? He's been with them, and then as soon as these people come up from Jerusalem, Peter changes his behavior and, and refuses to fellowship with them anymore because to fellowship with them and to eat with them would be a violation of some of the Jewish laws, the cleanliness laws. 
And it's left the Galatians wondering, what are we supposed to do? And so Paul talks to them in this letter. He says, I want you to know that I rebuked Peter to his face for this. And, and we got to the, in, in the sermon last week, we got to that point where Peter had just said, or I'm sorry, where Paul had said to Peter, well, we'll start in verse 14, verse 14. When I, that is Paul, saw that their conduct was not in step with the truth of the gospel, I said to Cephas, that is Peter, before them all, if you, though a Jew, live like a Gentile and not like a Jew, how can you force the Gentiles to live like Jews? And our passage today, I believe, is the continuation of what Paul said to Peter. And it's really the heart of it. And the reason is you can just see the pronouns there. We, we ourselves, we ourselves are Jews by birth and not Gentile sinners, right? And, and so what he's saying here, he, he's finding common ground with Peter. And he's saying, look, uh, we're, we're Jewish, I get it, right? And, and we're not Gentile sinners. Now, w- what does he mean by that? Well, the Jews had the covenant and the Jews had the, the promises of God, the Gentiles did not. And, and the Gentiles, by, the, by Jewish standards, were labeled sinners because they didn't have things like circumcision. They didn't have the food laws. Now, what Paul is not saying here is that only the Gentiles are sinners and the Jews are not sinners. No, that's, <laughs> he, he, he speaks out against that over and over and over again. What he's saying is, is like, look, Peter, we're, we're Jewish. I get that. And, and they're Gentiles. I get that. But we have believed the same gospel. We have believed the exact same gospel. You're a sinner, Peter. I'm a sinner. They are sinners. They're Gentiles, for heaven's sake, right? Peter understood himself to be a sinner. Everybody sins. That's not the point. What Paul is doing is he's finding common ground with him. We ourselves are Jews by birth, not Gentile sinners. And then he says in verse 16, and it's, it, it is dense and packed, but notice that he repeats three times that you are justified by faith not by works of the law. Even though Peter and Paul were Jews by birth, they had the law, Peter and Paul both knew that justification comes through faith in Christ, not by works of the law. So that raises a question or two. So you've got to put on your thinking caps here. We're going to dig deep into one of the most precious doctrines and the most controversial doctrines that the gospel has on offer, the doctrine of justification. What is justification? Now, I just said it's one of the most important doctrines. I, I, maybe if you, it, like the, the, the Trinity would, would, be, <laughs> would be up there, the hypostatic union, that Jesus Christ is both fully human and fully divine in his one person, and then justification by grace through faith. It's so important that it was one of the material doctrinal disputes that led to the Protestant Reformation. Justification, what is it? It's a theological term that has its roots in the court of law. A a Jewish judge would hear a case between two different people coming to them, each making some sort of claim, and the judge would have to decide who is in the right and who is in the wrong. The judge would find in favor of one party thereby justifying that individual. The individual who gets the verdict of just or, or righteous, it's, that's exactly what it is. It is a verdict. It's in the eyes of the law. And we're, we're used to that, right? This, this shouldn't be 
really alien or strange to us because we've all seen highly publicized court cases where it seemed like the person actually did the crime, but maybe the state couldn't present a good case or whatever. And so the, the, the court found the defendant to be not guilty, whereas pretty much everybody thought, well, I think this guy actually did it, right? And, and so a defendant is found to be not guilty, or in this case, is found to be just. The, the, it is a verdict. It is a legal statement to justify someone does not make that person righteous. It is a legal declaration. They are found to be righteous in the eyes of the law, the eyes of the court. It's a declaration of that person's status or position before the court. That's what justification is. And so when we say that we have been justified, we have been given a legal verdict by God who is the judge that says of us righteous. It is a statement or a declaration. It is not a description necessarily of our actual character. Does that make sense? Okay. So now, now, why is this important? Well, so, so, so here we go. The destiny of every human being one day is to stand before God and be judged. Now, that's not that controversial of a statement because the, the, the last polling that I saw out there, not that God cares what we think about such things, but most people recognize that there probably has to be some sort of accounting one day, that, that if God is who everyone says that he is, he has to judge in some sense. That, that, you know, that, 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 that plea of our heart, how long, O Lord, will the wicked prosper? Why do the righteous suffer? It's, it, it, it just doesn't seem fair to most people. And I, and I think there's something Imago Dei in us that drives us to this conclusion. It doesn't seem fair that the, the people could get away with stuff for so long without having to stand before their creator and be judged. We will, according to the Bible, be judged on the basis of what we have done. And you can read about the great white throne of judgment in the book of Revelation. But the book of Romans, another letter written by Paul, talks about final judgment too. In Romans 2, Paul writes, He will render to each one according to his works. To those who by patience and well-doing seek for glory and honor and immortality, he will give eternal life. But for those who are self-seeking and do not obey the truth, but obey unrighteousness, there will be wrath and fury. There will be tribulation and distress for every human being who does evil, the Jew first and also the Greek. But glory and honor and peace for everyone who does good, the Jew first and also the Greek, for God shows no partiality. The judgment of God will be fair and just." and righteous. On the day of judgment, no one will stand up and say to God, you were unfair. You brought a lousy case against me. No one will say that. The the, the prophetic anticipation or the predictions of this final judgment will be every mouth will be stopped. Everyone will know I got what I deserved. Now, Paul has just talked about how God is going to be fair to those who do good he will give blessing. But to those who do evil, there will be judgment. But if you keep reading through the rest of Romans, even one chapter later, Paul makes the point, actually no one does good. Not even one. No one at all. 
So where does justification fit into this? Justification is a verdict of being just or righteous before God. The doctrine of justification by faith is that for those who believe the gospel, they are declared to be righteous, not on the basis of what they have done, because no one does good, not even one, but and, and here he's talking about the normal human experience for all of us. But we are judged to be righteous. We are declared to be righteous or just on the basis of what Christ has done for us. It's this great exchange. Now notice, again, when we are declared, for those who believe the gospel, are declared to be righteous, it's not a description of our moral character. Not right now, it's not but it is a legal declaration where God says, righteous, just, forgiven. Now, this judgment, so, so stick with me here, <laughs> this judgment properly belongs on the last day. But for those who are followers of Jesus Christ, you have received your judgment the verdict ahead of time, right now. You know what it will be. You know that for those who are followers of the Lord Jesus Christ, for those who have confessed and believed, repented, trusted Christ, you receive a verdict right now. Your your in-time, eschatological is our theological word, our in-time judgment, you receive it right now. You know what it is righteous. You might be thinking, I don't feel that righteous right now. That doesn't matter. doesn't matter. You've received a verdict in the eyes of God's holy court, but God is not content to let you just continue to be as unrighteous as you possibly can, or even be as unrighteous as you are uncomfortable with. Not like that. No. God begins to work this sanctifying work in your life, transforming you into what he will one day declare you to be on that last day. That's the doctrine of justification by grace through faith. Now, Paul says that no one is going to be justified by works of the law. So this raises another question. What are works of the law? Well, in, in, in the context here, works of the law, that, that refers to like circumcision and the food laws. And circumcision was first commanded to Abraham. It's the removal of, of, of the foreskin of, of a male. It's a surgical and ritual act, and it marked every single male in Abraham's family which was the covenant community. God made promises to Abraham. Abraham says, I'm going to bless you and your family, but I want you to bear a mark of that, a sign of that covenant. So circumcision was the sign of the Abrahamic covenant 2,000 years before the time of Christ. So then 600 years later or so, when Moses takes this family of Abraham and, and, and they become a nation, God makes a covenant with Moses. It's only natural that this Abrahamic sign would be brought into the Mosaic law as well. You had to be circumcised if you were a male and part of the Mosaic community, the nation of Israel. The food laws included all the myriad laws of eating restrictions that are inscribed into the Mosaic law, what what we would call keeping kosher probably today for the Jewish people. I think they were specifically designed to make the Israelites 
different from the people that surrounded them. God was sending Israel into this promised land, and he's saying, you cannot be like the other nations. And and to make it easier for you to be not like the other nations, I'm going to make you dress funny. I'm going to make you cut your hair funny. You're going to eat really, really, really funny. And it's going to be kind of a bummer, actually. And you are definitely not going to worship the same way that they do. You will be a distinct people, a holy people. And the Jewish people, they followed those laws as best they could for 1,400 years until the time of Christ. So we might think, just based on what he said, do works of the law refer only to the circumcision and food laws? Because that's what Paul was talking about in his dispute with Peter. And the answer there would be no, because if you break any of the laws, including the food laws, then you're a lawbreaker. James talks about this in James chapter 2. James wrote, For whoever keeps the whole law but fails in one point has become guilty of it. For he who said, do not commit adultery, also said, do not murder. If you do not commit adultery, but you do murder, you have become a transgressor of the law. Now, James could have written it this way for our purposes. He could have written, for he who said, do not commit adultery, also said, do not eat pork or shellfish. If you do not commit adultery, but do eat pork or shellfish, you have become a transgressor of the law. So in context, Peter and Paul are talking about the food laws, because that's what was separating the Jews and the Gentiles in that specific moment, what to eat and with whom to eat. But by saying works of the law, Paul broadens it to include the whole law, including the big moral commands, the Ten Commandments. So here's the bottom line. No one is going to be justified before God by works of the law. Three times in the passage, Paul repeats, we are not justified by works of the law. No one will be justified by works of the law. At the end, he just says, no flesh. It's usually translated in our Bibles, no one. No flesh, the great equalizer of humanity. We're all made of flesh, right? We're all made of flesh. Jew and Gentile alike, skin and bones. And if you have skin and bones, then you will not, you cannot be justified by works of the law. You will never, ever be able to stand before God and say, I obeyed you, give me a verdict of righteous. Peter and Paul, as Jews, they had believed in Christ in order to be justified. And if God's covenant people, the Jewish people, have have to believe in Christ in order to be justified, why would there be any requirement that Gentiles, who never had the law to begin with, that they should now have to obey the law in order to be justified when the Jewish people don't even have to obey the law in order to be justified. And that's what Paul is saying to Peter. What are you thinking? What are you thinking? We couldn't even keep the law. Why would we burden them with it? And that's what makes Peter's behavior particularly galling to Paul. He was reverting back to the law, alienating Gentile Christians. And for what? For nothing. For nothing. Peter should have known better. And Paul's message to us is, we should know better too. If you don't understand yourself to be a Christian, you... If you are not a follower of Jesus, you need to know you're going to stand before God one day and you're going to have to give an account for your deeds. And you might hope that God is grading on a curve. 
but the standard of God's judgment is not your neighbor, and it's definitely not the worst person you can think of. Well, I know I'm no Mother Teresa, but, 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 but I'm no Adolf Hitler either, right? Or whoever the villain of the day is, right? The standard is not the worst person who ever lived. The standard is God. Over and over, all through the Bible, the Lord instructs his people, be holy as I am holy. That's God's standard himself. He can't judge by any other standard other than himself. Furthermore, he doesn't grade on a curve. The judgment is not, have I done more righteous things than unrighteous things? The judgment is, are you righteous? And you can't meet that standard. There's a whole Old Testament full of people who tried to meet the standard of God's holiness, who tried to live up to the dictates of the law, but works never work. Works never work for us. So the story in the, like right after Moses gives the people the law and, and, and Joshua takes over for him and they enter the land and now they're, you know, they're full of themselves and they're like, yeah, we're in the promised land now. We're going to keep the law. And, and, and Joshua is about to retire and he's saying, hey, I've led you as best I can, and, but I want to challenge you. Are you going to keep the law? Are you going to keep following the Lord? And all the people are like, yeah, we will. We're awesome. We will follow the Lord. And Joshua's like, no, you won't. I've been with you forever. You will not follow the law. You cannot follow the Lord. You won't do it. But will you follow the Lord? And they're like, yeah, we will follow the Lord. We're awesome. And they're high-fiving each other. And Joshua's like, no, you won't, you stiff-necked morons. You will not. I've been with you forever, and I know you will not. You cannot keep the law. That was my translation. This is what he actually said. But Joshua said to the people, you are not able to serve the Lord, for he is a holy God. He's a holy God. And, and it's not like the Jewish people were like a special brand of stiff-necked people. They were just human, just like you and me. We may want to serve the Lord. We may want to do what is right, but we are fundamentally broken and rebellious. But there's hope. There's hope, the hope of the gospel. It was even announced within the Mosaic law itself, right? One of the last words that Moses gave to the people was that one day, one day the Lord will circumcise your heart and the heart of your offspring so that you will love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, that you may live. See, the problem is not God's holy standard. The problem is not God's laws. The problem is us. The problem is our heart. We are, we are broken, and until God changes us from the inside, no matter how hard we try, we will not be able to serve, to follow, to worship, to love the way that he wants us to. That promise 1,400 years before the time of Christ given by Moses was fulfilled with the coming of Jesus in the gospel, that circumcision of the heart, the giving of a new heart, is made possible. And the gospel is simply that Jesus Christ came and he lived a perfect life for us. He died the penalty for sin in our place and that God raised him from the dead that we might live. And if you repent and you believe that, then you can be saved. And that might sound, well, that just sounds ridiculous. But for those of us who are followers of Christ, we know that that's the truth, right? And it's, it's, such, it's such good news, 
Such good news. Christian, do you feel that your standing before God is based on your performance? Well, in, well, I've just been preaching to you. No, you can't, right? Well, but sometimes, almost all the time, we lapse into that. And if so, then Paul's words to Peter apply to us. Works never work. Christian, you have received your end-time verdict in advance of that day. You need not fear the day of judgment because you already have your verdict. You have been justified. You have the answer key, the cheat code, the sneak peek, the eternal life hack, whatever you want to call it, you know the truth. You can know with certainty what will be said of you on that last day, the day of days, before the great white throne and a watching cosmos, righteous. And here's the thing, is that I'm, I'm sure you know, the gospel runs contrary to every inclination of every fiber of our sinful flesh. The gospel insists that we are justified by faith, not by works, but we steadfastly want to justify ourselves. We steadfastly want to do it. I'm camping out on this because it's important. A former pastor of mine told of how often he would visit the elderly in hospice, and these are people who had been faithful church members for so long, and he would be talking to them, and over and over again it would break his heart because they would, they would say, and they were being honest, they would say something like, I just hope I've done enough good to where God will accept me. And they sounded just like Peter there. The gospel insists we are justified by faith, not by works. And that's how we get in, and that's how we maintain, and that will be our plea on the last day. The, The hymn, My Jesus, I Love Thee, uh, we, we sing of this. The, the, the first verse talks of our entrance in. My Jesus, I love thee. I know thou art mine. For thee, all the follies of sin I resign. My gracious Redeemer, my Savior art thou. If ever I loved thee, my Jesus, tis now. The second to the last verse talks about dying. I'll love thee in life I will love thee in death and praise thee as long as thou lendest me breath and say when the death dew lies cold on my brow, if ever I loved thee, my Jesus, tis now. Friends, I I want you to know that I am absolutely committed to reminding you of this great truth for as long as the Lord gives us time together, gives me time on earth. Our confession and our hope can never and it must never change. What is our only comfort in life and in death? That we are not our own, but belong body and soul, both in life and death, to God and to our Savior, Jesus Christ. Christian, your justification is binding. Paul's words to you, they are to live in that confidence that comes through faith in Christ. Remember your justification. You are declared righteous. No matter how faithfully you have lived your life, 
when you stand before God one day, your only plea can be Jesus. If you have been relatively unfaithful and you, you compare, you spend your whole life comparing yourselves to other Christians, your one plea will be, Jesus died for me. The worst sinner to the most righteous in, the, in human eyes, saint. The plea can only be Jesus. So, young people through old people, we will continually remind you of this. Your only hope is the gospel. Your only hope is the gospel. Another quick application on this. You need not clean yourself up in order to come to God because you have been justified. <laughs> and so I'm, I'm talking to, strangely enough, mostly men here today, and maybe, maybe this is just me, but I'll bet it's like every single one of you. Um, there's times where I don't behave the way that I know that I should, and, and, and I sin. And there's something inside me that wants to prove myself to God before I go to him. I just got to go. I, I don't really feel like praying right now, but, but I, I just want to prove myself for like 24 hours or 48 hours or, or whatever it is, right? 48 hours of like relatively good behavior. And, and then, then I'll go to the Lord. Now, as I'm articulating it, it sounds like the dumbest thing that I've ever heard. But I'll bet you guys have thought that too. <laughs> and, and maybe it's the ladies as well, but I know it's the guys. When we sin, we plead Christ and we run to him immediately. Why? Because we have been justified. Because we have been declared righteous. And we are accepted by God as we are. And to think that we can clean ourselves up or prove ourselves to God is actually to do exactly what Peter was doing. It was to depend upon my works to justify myself in some weird, ridiculous way before God, when God has done everything necessary for us to come to him already. Okay, really quickly now, the, we'll finish this up. The misconception. There's a misconception here that Paul addresses. Doesn't salvation through faith lead to sin? He says in verse 17, if in our endeavor to be justified in Christ, we too were found to be sinners, is Christ then a servant of sin? And he says, certainly not. For if I rebuild what I tore down, I prove myself to be a transgressor. Paul here is addressing something that has, has really buggered the church for a long, long time. And, and, and it, it, like immediately with the Galatians in like the year, I don't know, whatever, 40-something, 50-something, right? All the way up to the Protestant Reformation in the 1500s. Paul's out, or Paul, Martin Luther is out there preaching justification by grace through faith. And the Roman Catholic Church said, well, why would anybody obey? If they've already received their end-time verdict now, righteous, and they know that's what it's going to be, then, then, then why would anybody follow Jesus? Why, that is, try to obey him or serve the Lord or not do bad things. The, the Roman Catholic Church was saying, we need the threat, we need the threat of judgment to keep people in line. And it caused a big rupture in the church. The same thing was going on right off the bat with Paul in Galatia. Justification by faith has always been scandalous and difficult for legalists, those who want to impose their sensibilities on others. 
But see, there's great gospel clarity here. Paul explains that a Christian is one who seeks to be justified by faith. A Christian is one who knows his only hope is to put your faith in Christ. And part of seeking to be justified by faith is to acknowledge, I'm a sinner. <laughs> I'm a sinner. If, if, if you're a Christian, you recognize that. You confess that. You know that. I am a sinner. And Paul, again, uses court language here. A court will find you guilty. He says, if I am, if I am seeking to be found, or, or if, if I am seeking justification, then I will be found a sinner. I'll be found a sinner. A Christian knows he's a sinner. We have to own that. So we seek, we endeavor not to work our way to heaven, but to depend upon the gospel, the good news that Christ died for sin and rose for our justification. And the Christian knows that he or she is saved, has been declared righteous, apart from any effort to keep the law. And so, well, is that just going to lead to lawlessness? Is there going to be a bunch of Christians behaving badly? That could be like an MTV show, right? Okay, so like one person knew what I was talking about there. Um, And Paul's adamant, no, may it never be, he says. The Christian is not lawless. And and the book of Galatians chapter 5 and chapter 6 are going to go into great detail of, of exactly Oh, we obey the law of love. We are far from lawless, far from lawless. So you got to come back for that. Paul's argument in verse 18 is that both Peter and Paul had been preaching salvation in Christ. But if, if after all that, they turn back to the law, something they'd actually been implicitly and explicitly teaching against, then they're at cross purposes with God. Cross purposes, shouldn't have said it that way. They are, <laughs> that makes you think something else maybe. They are, they're going against God. God has changed things for everybody. He's moved on. There's a new man in town. It's Jesus Christ. You are saved by faith in him. So to go back and start preaching the law, Paul says, you're trying to get in a time machine and go back to it. It's fundamentally dumb. You're going against God and you're preaching something that never ever worked to begin with. Jesus Christ has come. There's salvation available and it is free. It is on offer. You never could have earned it anyway. To, re- to preach a return to the law would be to deny what God was doing. That would make Paul a transgressor. And so he brings correction number one. Through faith in Christ, I am, more, I am now dead to the law, but alive to God. Verse 19, that's basically, I just quoted it. For through the law, I died to the law so that I might live to God. How do we die to the law? Well, when Christ died, the rest of Galatians is going to have more to say on this. But for now, chapter 4, Paul's going to argue there that Jesus Christ was born under the law, came to redeem those under the law, and that when he went to the cross, we can, because of belief and union with him, we can share in that death. We are united to Christ. His history becomes our history, and our history becomes his, which is a great deal for us and a lousy deal for him, because he lived a perfect life, and we get that. We are sinners, and Christ got that. It was a big exchange. We've died to the law, then why would we go back to it? To borrow from Romans 7, it's like someone who's a widower who remarries but is asked then to live according to the rules and arrangements of the dead spouse. It makes no sense. 
Paul's statement here is that if Christ died in our place, then we're free to live for God. No more striving, no more pulling ourselves up by our own bootstraps, no more working to earn God's favor. Paul says, in Christ, you already have God's favor. You might say, but I want to earn it. And things are more precious when they're earned. And I agree with that. I get it. But you can't earn it. But Christ is able to, and he did earn it. Your salvation in Christ was dearly bought. The last two chapters of Galatians are going to speak to what it is to live for God, but there are some hints in the next verse. And here we find correction number two. We live by faith, not duty. We're motivated by love, not fear. Galatians 2.20, I have been crucified with Christ. It is no longer I who live, but Christ who lives in me. And the life I now live in the flesh, I live by faith in the Son of God who loved me and gave himself for me. I'm going to pause right there and just say this. That is one of the greatest verses in the entire Bible. And it is well worth your time to memorize it. And so for all the young people or the young at heart, I'll tell you what I'll do. You memorize Galatians 2.20. I'm going to bring candy next week and the week after. You come up, you recite it to me, I will give you a candy bar. Okay? You memorize it. And, and I don't, if you're like 95, I don't know if there's any 95-year-old, you come, you quote that verse to me, I'll give you a candy bar. And you might say, oh, that's just a tacky saying. I know you love candy. And if there's parents out there who are like, well, you, you can give them carrot sticks. That's fine. But kids, come see me. I'll give you a candy bar afterwards. All right? Memorize that. It's one of the greatest verses in the entire Bible. There are some verses that encapsulate what it is to be a Christian. Galatians 2.20 is one of them. Take the time to memorize it. Paul says, it's no longer I who live. Paul's not saying that when you come to Christ, you disappear. He's not saying you lose your biological life, certainly. He's not saying that you lose your personality even. It's actually the opposite. He's saying that when when you come to Christ, you die to sin and sin loses its grip on you. Sin is this leech on you that dehumanizes, makes you the most inauthentic person that is around. It's, it's, It's one of these great ironies that people think that they need to sin in order to be authentic. Yeah, sin like every human being since page two of our Bible, right? And you think you're doing something unique by sinning? If you really want to be unique, if you want to be truly you, don't sin. Jesus Christ can make that possible. I think there's a fear out there by some outside the church, oh, all Christians, they just want you to act the same and be the same. God's word to you is this that when you come to Christ, he will make you more authentically you than you have ever, ever been. If you want to be your truest self, come to Jesus. If you want to be like everybody else, then just stay dead in sin. One day, you will be free from the touch of sin. Every fiber of your being, every fiber of your being will be inclined towards the good. And I would argue that you will be more authentically you, more uniquely you than you have ever been before. Christ can do that for you. Today we live by faith. We've been emphasizing the importance of faith. Faith is important in the world today. We hear people talk about, well, my faith did this, my faith did that. My faith saved me. Are you a person of faith? But that's really kind of empty talk because having faith in and of itself gains you nothing. 
It's the object of your faith that makes all the difference. And that's what Paul goes to right here. Do you notice in Galatians 2.20, he gives two important factors here. It's faith in the Son of God, the second member of the Trinity, the all-powerful creator. That is a friend in a high place. That is someone worth having faith in. And second, it's faith in the one who loves you and gave himself for you. It's intensely personal for Paul here, isn't it? Christ loved me, and Christ gave himself for me. Every Christian can make that claim, and every Christian ought to make that claim. I can't emphasize this enough. Christian, you are loved by God. And that should make all the difference in the world. How important is the knowledge that Christ loves you? Well, faith cannot be sustained without it. Faith can't be sustained without it. I don't know what the right thing to do. I'm not saying that you wake up in the morning and you say, wow, Jesus loves me. But maybe we ought to. Maybe that is a good thing to do to remind ourselves over and over again that, that the one in whom we are to have faith is the Son of God. And that very one loves you and gave himself for you. We cannot remind ourselves of that enough. I know that because the biblical authors reminded us of that over and over again. But God demonstrates his own love for us in this. While we were still sinners, Christ died for us. For God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son. Galatians 2.20. I have been crucified with Christ and I no longer live, but Christ lives in me. The life I live now, I live by faith in the Son of God who loved me and gave himself for me. I get to give myself a candy bar now. We should close. Martin Luther never denied that he was a great sinner. Never. He also knew that God was a great judge, and that terrified him early on. Paul believed those things as well. And those things are as true today as they were back then. The gospel does not deny that you are a great sinner. The gospel does not deny that God is a great judge. In fact, the gospel is predicated on those things. We are great sinners. God is a great and holy judge. But what Luther came to understand, what Paul understood, but Peter momentarily forgot, what we must understand and dare not forget, is that yes, it is true, I am a great sinner. But God in Christ is a greater Savior. Amen? Amen. Let me pray for us. Father, you are uh, incredibly good to us. And I pray, Father, that for those of us who, who, have, who, who have loved the Lord Jesus Christ, who have, who have called upon him to, to save us, that, that you would keep reminding us over and over again of your great love for us in Christ, and that we would not forget the gospel, but that we would cling to it tenaciously. No matter what stage of life we are in, that we would cling to our confession steadfastly, because only in that can we live. Father, we pray for, for, for those who, who don't know you, that they would come to understand the, the, the wonder and the glory of, of the gospel of, of Christ. Pray, Father, for, that, 
that, that any here who don't know you as Savior would come to know that you are a great Savior. Bless us all, please, to that end, in Jesus' name. Amen.